Uh, so my name is Josh Parson. I am one of the elders here at Covenant. I know I've not had a chance to meet all of you. I would love to have that opportunity. If you still want to meet, I'll be in the, uh, in the lobby. After this sermon, you may not want to talk to me at all, which is fine. But the invitation is still going to be there. Uh, we're continuing our journey through the book of Colossians as we embark into chapter 3. So up to this point, chapter 1, we talked about who Jesus is. We defined his godliness, holiness, preeminence, his majesty, his pervasiveness into the world and into our lives. Chapter 2 showed us that Jesus is more than enough. There's no alteration or secret sauce that needs to be added to Christian faith that will give you eternal life with him beyond recognition of the gospel message of his death and resurrection and belief and chasing after that. Doesn't matter how spiritual you think you are, you try to be. Jesus is it. He's more than enough. He's all that's required. So as we open into chapter 3, what we're going to see is Paul is transitioning his letter where he was addressing the church of Colossae holistically, telling them things like, don't listen to false teachers. Don't practice aestheticism and depriving yourself of physical things to try and be more spiritual. He's now addressing individual Christian life. And so the next two chapters of Colossians, we're going to be seeing those different subjects of the Christian life and what it's supposed to look like. So if you join me in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, he says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what we see happening, this first subject of many that Paul is going to cover about the Christian life, we see that Paul is talking about the mind of the Christian what it's supposed to be like, what we're supposed to do with our minds. And this message is not going to be simply a message of think happier thoughts, try harder, do more, be better. Those are definitely aspects of it, but it's not the only thing I'm trying to say. Being, being positive all the time doesn't necessarily solve problems. And each of the subjects that Paul is going to address over the rest of this book, including the mind, are going to vary from person to person on the level of difficulty and challenge and struggle that's going to come for each and every one of us individually. For example, and this is no secret for those of you who know me, uh, math is not my strong suit. And uh, <clears throat> my parents had to bribe me to learn my multiplication tables as a child because I didn't like it, I didn't enjoy it, it was hard, so I was bribed. Joke's on them, I'm still terrible at it, but I got, I got through school. Something happened that was very unique for me in high school, though. I think it was my junior year. I was in a situation where I was competing, if you will, for the top grade in a math class. Uncharted territory for me. Just never happened again, either, for the record. Um, and it, it wasn't a remedial math class, so just... Give me a little bit of space here. It was a normal math class. I was doing well. I don't know. Maybe it was the cereal I switched to. 
But it wasn't calculus or trigonometry or some advanced algebra. It was geometry class. Yeah, yeah, I know. You guys who like math hate geometry. Um, probably because it's too easy and too boring. But you know what? That's apparently what I needed. And we can sit and talk about what makes me such a freak that I enjoyed geometry and that I was able to tackle that and do well. But if you want to come to my small group on Tuesday nights, we can do that there. Kind of pick apart my person. That's all right. Uh, <clears throat> but as we look into Colossians chapter 3, my point is, is that every single subject that Paul is going to address, we come to class, if you will, stronger in certain subjects than others. So I want to encourage us as we get going into this series for me that is going to show us how Jesus is more than enough for me. He's more than enough for you. But I want to encourage us to be patient with ourselves as we strive towards Christ-likeness, to be patient with your brother and sister in Christ as they strive and struggle in certain areas that you might be doing really good in. The reality is, is that for some of us, our minds are a very scary and tumultuous place, riddled with bad experiences and trauma. For some of us, our minds are a well-kept garage. There's a lot of stuff in there, but it's organized. It's clean. And for some of us, our minds are just a blank slate with empty canvas, and that's okay. You might be my people. But what we need to remember is that Jesus ultimately is for your mind. He roots for it. He encourages it. He desires it. He enriches it. So when we look in chapter 3, verse 1 of Colossians, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So first, a Christian mind is a holy mind. It is a mind that is seeking the things above and knows what we should be. Paul is clear here that because of Christ's accomplishment in being raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God in heaven, there is no other person or place that we should be tightening our focus to than him. And it's amazing to me that King David in the Old Testament, he got a glimpse of this thousands and thousands of years ago in Psalm 110 where he says, the Lord said to my Lord, come sit at my right hand where God is telling the Messiah to sit here, be at my right hand. Do you notice the, the active statement that Paul makes in this first verse? It's not a one and done thing. He says to seek the things that are above. Seeking something is not just looking at it, saying, oh, there it is. That's finding it. Seeking it is to chase after something, to discover it, to unearth it to continue to learn more and more about it. The fact is, is that only that which is holy can exist, can survive in the presence of God. And unless I'm missing something, no one in this room or on this planet has achieved that yet. But Jesus is there. He can survive in the holy presence of God because he himself is holy. He took on the sins of everyone else after living a sinless life, buried them in hell, rose from the grave, and joined God in heaven at his right hand. So while we are stuck in this world for now, we're stuck in this flesh and with this sinful mind for now, 
We are to be striving for the standard of holiness that is the risen Christ. He should be our focus. He is the one that we should be seeking after. I heard once years ago that God does not care if what you do and the choices that you make are right or wrong. He cares if what you do or the choices you make are holy or unholy. Why? Because God is not only right, he's also and ultimately holy. The question of right and wrong ultimately leads us to a question or decision of morality. And yes, God is a moral God. Morality defined by God in the Bible sets limits on human actions. It sets precedences in the law. But you can be right or moral without being holy. Jesus addresses this in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He tells all these people who are listening to him, you have heard this standard of morality, but I tell you this, the standard of holiness, and this is where we're supposed to be attempting to achieve. This is the standard that we're supposed to be seeking after. So my question to you, is it right or wrong, is it holy or unholy to watch that TV show, to sing along with those lyrics, to talk that way with your friends, to speak that way about your boss? At the end of the day, I can quote The Office with the best of them. I can recall origin stories of superheroes with very, very little struggle. But what is sad is I still have a hard time quoting Scripture accurately. I still have a tough time mustering the courage to share the gospel with someone. I still have a tough time always doing my best in my job and leading my family. Is anyone perfect in those areas? No. But where is my focus? If I focus more on those holy things, I would be more like Christ. We shouldn't take Romans chapter 8, verse 5 lightly. It's a warning. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. How much mental energy do we spend seeking the things that are holy, that are above where Christ is, and then so replicating his character and nature to the world? How much time do we spend seeking the truths of Scripture? There are truths and promises in Scripture that I have never discovered, probably never heard, that I still need to seek after, and so do you. I remember back in my days of of full-time ministry, working with college students primarily, and sitting across the table from them, and having conversations where they're asking a lot of questions, just a myriad of questions, everything under the sun. And I was always so thankful for that opportunity to to have these conversations with these college students, but in the back of my mind, my mind is, is... is screaming, read your Bible. The answer to your question is right there. Just do a little research. But so often, 
We are too easily satisfied with being spoon-fed on a Sunday morning that doing our own research is just a bridge too far. Philippians 4.8 tells us the kinds of things that are above that we should be thinking about, seeking after. It says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure and lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. A man named John Stott gave an address in 1972 at a large conference that was crafted into an 80-page little book called Your Mind Matters. It's a very easy read. I mean, it's super thin. Guys, I read it in like two sittings. If I can do it, anybody can. But what he says, he says that one of the highest and noblest functions of man, of a man's mind, is to listen to God's word, to read his mind and think his thoughts after him. If we would simply read the word of God, we would understand the thoughts and character of God, and we would be able to think like God thinks. First Thessalonians 4, 7 says, God has not called us for a life of impurity, but rather a life of holiness. A Christian mind is to be holy. But that brings me to the second aspect of a Christian mind. Looking at verse 2, Paul says, set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. A Christian mind should be equipped. It should be a mind set on there versus here, eternal versus temporary. And if you don't already know this, if you haven't picked this up already, uh, unlike Pastor David, I'm a nerd. And I don't have a lot in common with the experiences and stories that, that he has when it comes to sports. I've been assumed to be an athlete, I think, three times in my entire life. <laughs> Unless we want to talk about high school marching band, because we went hard and we were awesome, so deal with that. But part of my nerdiness includes being a gamer, which may be a dirty word to some of you, and that's okay. But if there's anything that a gamer knows, especially one who likes to play role-playing games like I do, is the importance of being properly equipped. The likelihood of a successful attempt in a battle or a boss fight is largely and mostly dependent on how well-equipped you are, whether you're wearing the right armor, have the right weapons and the right skills. Because if you go in unprepared... It's going to be a grave mistake. You're going to lose that fight. And I'm sure many of us are familiar with the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. How many of these pieces of equipment would not require a well-equipped and well-trained mind? I would argue that none of them are effective without a well-trained and equipped mind. We've already talked about righteousness. It would be hard to wear a truth belt if you didn't know what truth was. How effective is a mindless gospel message? I'm very thankful that God can use any feeble attempt we make to share the gospel with people to save souls. Thank God for that. But how much more effective would a well-prepared and equipped message be and not being a hindrance to the delivery of the gospel message to someone who doesn't know it. What about the shield of faith? 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a, a preacher in the UK through pretty much all the 1900s, he was talking, preaching through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30, where Jesus tells his followers not to be anxious and says, If God clothes, clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Martin Lloyd-Jones says that faith is a mind exercise. He says, uh, there's a quote on the screen for you, faith according to his, this teaching is primarily thinking. And the whole trouble with a man of little faith is that he doesn't think. He allows circumstances to bludgeon him. We must spend more time studying our Lord's lessons and observation and deduction. The Bible is full of logic. And we must never think of faith as something purely mystical. We do not just sit down in an armchair and expect marvelous things to happen to us. That is not Christian faith. Faith is essentially thinking. Look at the birds. Think about them and draw your deductions. Look at the grass. Look at the lilies and consider them. Faith, if you like, can be defined like this. It is a man insisting upon thinking when everything else seems determined to bludgeon and knock him down in an intellectual sense. The trouble with the person of little faith is that instead of controlling his own thought, his thought is being controlled by something else, and he goes round and round in circles and goes nowhere. So when Paul tells us in verse 2 to set our minds on the things that are above, he is, not tell, or he is telling us that our minds are not to be ill-equipped. And I can't believe I'm, I'm going to this dark place in my life for this example, but I can't think of anything better. <clears throat> I'm a parent, like many of you. Promise we wouldn't go here, but... <sighs> and I can tell you one thing, that no one on earth has their minds set on something like a toddler does. Praise God that my kids did not stop growing and stop developing and we got out of that very terrible time. But it is unfathomable how singularly resolute the mind of a toddler is when they are set on something. When they are set on having their dinner on the green plate. Not the blue one. Not the light green one. The green one. Our minds properly set on the things above, are to be so equipped and informed and so trained that secular data, arguments, demands, and trends are first considered through a robust framework of reference, a framework of reference of the grace and goodness of God, of truth and of the supernatural, the pervasiveness of evil, authority, and the value of life. Sadly, though, we Christians are focusing on the things on earth. Too often we are echoers of earthly things, of news headlines, TikTok trends, Marvel movies, sports teams, 6.2-inch screens that we carry in our pockets. And now that I've offended everybody, if you'll humor me just a little bit longer with this nerdy gamer illustration... <clears throat> Let me tell you that one of the most frustrating things when playing certain games 
is showing up to that boss fight, showing up to that map, not only in wrong or weak equipment, but having the right equipment in your inventory the whole time and never putting it on and using it. Simply put, we have everything we need available to us in order to set our minds on the things above. We just need to dust it off and put it on or get up from the armchair, as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had mentioned, and go train. We have three things that we can use to keep ourselves set on the things above, to be properly equipped in this world and in this Christian life. We have the Spirit of God residing in us with a promise. God said in Psalm 32, verse 8 and 9, He said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, and I will counsel you with my eye upon you. We have the Spirit of God residing in us that promises to teach us, lead us, and counsel us. But if we don't engage that Spirit in our prayer lives, in time spent seeking after it, you're not going to be equipped for the life that a Christian is called to, to deal with the battle against the world that we are in. Secondly, we have the Word of God. You know, aside from Jesus being the Son of God and God and all that, do you know what he used to keep his mind set on the things above? He prayed alone often. But he also used the Bible. That's what he used when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. He used scripture. No, he didn't pull a scroll out and throw it at Satan. He quoted the Old Testament, which is a metaphorical scroll that he threw at Satan. But he used the Bible. Four or three times in Matthew 4, Jesus recognized that what the devil was suggesting was evil and contrary to the will of God. It is written, Jesus said. There was no room for debate or argument. The matter was settled in his mind on the outset. Scripture laid down for him what was right. Scripture lays down for us what is right. And I know that memorizing Scripture is difficult. I've been through, I grew up in church, I've been through the vacation Bible schools and the Bible drills and I used to have long commutes, my wife and I, and we used to just try and practice memorizing Scripture. It's tough. Finding the time to make the time to memorize Scripture is also tough. I understand. But there is something, can I just give you a little bit of a life hack here, that can so easily bore itself into your brain with very little effort. And that thing is a song. With a single word, I could ruin a lot of people's mornings. And I'm not talking about the word moist. I'm talking about a word from a a song. That word, excavator, if you know, then you know what I'm talking about. Excavator. So many Christian musicians have taken the time to take scripture verbatim and set it to music. So let's say that a song is on average, what, three minutes long? After a couple listens through, nine, or ten min- nine to twelve minutes later, you could have the entirety of Psalm 121 memorized, for example. Most of the songs, actually all the songs that we sing here, 
are riddled with passages of Scripture. If you hear them and recognize them, write them down. And then go read them in context. It'll help you to know and recall the Word of God so you can throw that scroll at Satan. The third thing that we have available to us to be well-equipped is the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 tells us, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to, tur- to stir one another up to love and good works, not le- neglecting to meet together, as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And as we know at Covenant, Sunday is just the start. I cannot stress enough the importance of being part of a small group, of being in discourse, a.k.a. conversation, with your brothers and sisters in the faith who are struggling with things as you're struggling, and you can encourage each other. Or even better, have struggled through what you're currently struggling in and can impart that wisdom and experience to you. Show me one world-class athlete who has become so on their own with no coach, no trainer, no team, and I will literally show you every other athlete that's ever existed. We can't do this alone. We have the church. We have our brothers and sisters in faith. John Stott says that the battle is nearly always won in the mind and is by the renewal of our mind that our character and behavior have become transformed. So the Christian mind, to my next point, is renewed. We should think on what we already are. So first one, be holy. Think about what we should be. Two, think about the things that are there, not here. And then it should be renewed. We should think on what we already are. We should not only think about holiness and set our minds there. We should think about what Jesus has already done in you. We are renewed. And modern culture has really cheapened the word renewed for me. You know, it used to have this like air of life and restoration to former glory. Now it just makes me think of Amazon. Have you ever bought anything renewed from Amazon? I have a handful of times. It's a mixed bag experience. But at a discount. You get a discount. That's good. But just last month, I ordered something renewed from Amazon. I had moderately low expectations of the condition of the item I was going to receive. But I'm cheap, and I like a bargain, so I went for it. And it arrived at my house. And you could just hear the pieces shaking in the box. Not a good sign. So I opened the box, and lo and behold, pieces of this item were severed and just rattling around in there. Not in a way that you could just pop them back on. Completely severed off. Yes, it was an action figure. We've talked about the fact that I'm a nerd. But that's what I bought, and it had body parts just rattling in this box. I don't expect anyone at Amazon who cares is going to hear this sermon So I'm just going to pile on a little bit. Because even if they take me for all I'm worth, all they're getting is a bunch of transformers that I bought from them in the first place that they're then going to sell back to you as renewed. So there you are. But I mean, seriously, Amazon renewed? Renewed by who? Sid from Toy Story? What are we doing here? (laughs) What a pale comparison to the renewal that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that we died 
in our life, our true life is secured in Jesus. So when life is hard and when you fail, when you fall, when the simple stuff is difficult, when pursuing holiness and equipping your mind is exhausting and tiresome, when you have a toddler at home that wants a certain color plate, think about what you already are. Be emboldened by that truth. 1 Corinthians 1.30, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Let anyone who boasts, boast in the Lord. Another John Stock quote straight out of this book, I'm telling you. He says, we are to constantly recall what God has done for us and say to ourselves, God has united me with Christ in his death and resurrection and thus obliterated my old life and given me an entirely new life in Christ. He has adopted me into his family and made me his child. He has put his Holy Spirit within me and made my body his temple. He has also made me his heir and promised me an eternal destiny with him in heaven. This is what he has done for me and in me, and this is what I am in Christ. Fourth and finally, Paul tells us that a Christian mind is to be hopeful. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. A hopeful Christian mind rejoices on what is to come. If there is one thing that is guaranteed to just cause a really ridiculous eye roll when watching a TV show or a movie, it's when someone starts talking about hope. I'm not sure what it is, but inevitably some character who is bordering on uselessness the entire time starts making a hope speech, and that's when I take my bathroom break. Maybe I'm just impatient because I want to see the final battle. Really, though, I think it just sounds so cheesy. That and I'm just inherently pessimistic. And I'm not a pessimistic or negative or cynical person on purpose. It's just kind of how I'm wired. You optimistic, hopey, happy people, perky people, I need you in my life. You drive me crazy, but I need you. There is, however, no room for a pessimistic or despairing mind in light of the future glory that's to come. Did you catch what Paul said in verse 4? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's something to hope forward to, or to hope for and look forward to. That last song that we just sang, Hymn of Heaven, talks about that beautifully. Ironically enough, 1 Corinthians 13, 9 through 12 is my favorite passage in Scripture. <clears throat> and it's so counter to my personality. It's crazy. It says that for, we, for now, we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child and reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. This is, this is the crux for me. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Hopefulness, hopefulness much like faith, requires an active mind. Something about 1 Corinthians 13, 12 just lights up my imagination. It makes me think, 
about how I will no longer have to squint across the horizon to try and get an HD image of Jesus. The time is coming where I'll be able to see him and know him completely. You and I will know the complete fullness of Christ, unhindered by our sinful flesh. We will sit and talk with him like old friends in person. Guys, he knows me. He fully knows me and still chooses to have a relationship with me. I only barely know how awesome he is. And that little bit of awesomeness is so potent, it brings me to my knees. Imagine knowing him fully as he already knows you fully. How glorious that will be. Second Corinthians 4.16 Do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This morning I want to leave us where we started. First, uh, Colossians 3 verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above and not the things that are on earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Father God, we come to you this morning so thankful for what you've done. So thankful that you sent Jesus here to earth to live the model perfect life, to bear the sins of all of us and crucified him on a cross so that he could defeat death and provide freedom from sin and ascend to your right hand so that we may one day join you there. But God, I pray that as we prepare to leave this place this morning, that we will remember the conditions of our minds in light of our walk with you. God, that our minds would be set on the things that are above, that they would, our thoughts would be holy, that we would be equipped, that our equipment and our armor would be set on us and ratcheted down, ready to take a hit from the world, God, because we know what truth is. We know who you are. And God, I pray that we would also continue to be renewed, remind ourselves of the goodness of your grace, that we would remind ourselves of the gospel. We'd preach it to ourselves daily. And God, I pray that we would just continue to be hopeful, that we would continue to rejoice and look forward to the day of Jesus' return, to look forward to the day where we will know you fully, that we will know our Savior fully. We thank you and you praise you. And it's in your son's name.